I invite you to take your Bibles as you do so and turn, if you will, to the book of Jeremiah. We'll begin reading Jeremiah chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 9. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 9. I'm reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's word declares, Now therefore I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord, against your children's children I'll bring charges for pass beyond the coasts of Cyprus and sea. Send to Kedar and consider diligently and see if there has been such a thing. As a, has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods, but my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he plundered? The young lions roared at him and growled. They made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Also, the people of Noph and Tophanes have broken the crown of your head. Have you not brought this on yourself, in that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now, why take the road to Egypt to drink the waters of Seor? Or why take the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Your own wickedness will correct you, and your black backsliding will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God. And the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. For of old I have broken your yoke, and burst your bonds. And you said, I will not transgress. But on every high hill and under every green tree you lay down, playing the harlot. Yet I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality, and then you have turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine. For though you wash yourselves with lye and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. How can you say I am not polluted? I have not gone after the balls. See your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift dromedary breaking loose in her ways. A wild donkey used to the wilderness that sniffs at the wind in her desire. In her time of mating, who can turn her away? And those who seek her will not weary themselves in her month. They will find her. Without your foot from being unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said there is no hope. No For I have loved aliens, and after them I will go. As the thief is ashamed when he is out, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They and their kings and their princes and their priests and their prophets, saying to a tree, you are my father. And to a stone, you gave birth to me. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. But where are your gods that you have made for yourselves? Let them arise. If they can save you in the time of trouble, for according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. Why will you plead with me? You all have transgressed against me, says the Lord. In vain I have chastened your children. They receive no correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. O generation, see the word of the Lord. I have been a wilderness to Israel. Or a land of darkness? Have I been a wilderness to Israel? Or a land of darkness? Why do my people say we are lords? We will come no more to you. 
Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten my days. I'm sorry, I've gotten me days without number. This morning we have an opportunity to consider a little history of nations and their gods. And it's a good week to do it. Uh, we will trust in the Lord in his time frame for the preaching schedule. As sometimes it doesn't always go the... Usually it goes a little longer than my anticipation, so it presses some messages later on than what I expected. But we come to a passage this morning where God asks a very simple question. And he asks us to look back into history and to look around us in our present as well among the nations. And then he begins to ask Israel to consider her past, her own history with God, and then to consider for a little while her unfaithfulness to him, even in the midst of his faithfulness to them. And what the results are for a generation that simply wants to go their own way. And ignore the things of God, ignore the expectations of God, and just do it our way. And that's going to be a theme we're going to pick up in Jeremiah later on extensively when this question is really posed to Israel directly. Are you going to do it God's way or your own way? And their statement is going to be, God's way is hopeless. Can you imagine that? The people of God saying that? God's way is hopeless. We're going to do what's right in our own eyes. We're going to do it our way. And so Jeremiah's ministry is really just beginning, and in the midst of this, God is still in the, in the process of challenging Israel as he builds his argument for why it is going to be necessary for them to be so severely punished, so severely treated by the one who is their God, whether they recognize him as such or not. And so we're going to have several Questions that I think are going to be very applicable to us this morning in our own lives and our own nation, and even, I believe, for the church as the people of God. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word before us, and we are always challenged by it. And know that we cannot really come to it with our own interests, um, we need to have your spirit at work in our lives and your interests at heart and your desires and to rightly uh, understand your word and communicate it and to live it. And so we pray your help this morning to lead us into your truth and also to guard us from error. That we might be in that balanced point of the uh, smooth path that you give us, we might not go off into the things of this world or the things of our own interests, that we might truly be walking in a manner of obedience to you. Again, Lord, we recognize that we are walking and taking a step into the divine now, and we pray that you might have liberty to work in us. who center so much of our lives over the flesh and the temporal, and now 
we have opportunity to look into the eternal, and we pray you might give us the wisdom to do it, and by your Spirit to do it well. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we left off last week in verse 9, and we, as we looked at the past, present, and future uh, and the presentation of God and building his case against Israel is the prosecutor's um, words, essentially. He is just drawing it forward. And, and again, we often think of God's judgment as coming by some crazy person walking around saying, repent, um, repent the, the, because the end is near. Um, and that they have no basis and no foundation and no uh, reasonableness to their uh, declarations. But we find something very different in God's where the God is, uh, goes almost overboard. He just meticulously builds a case against his people. And it is a rational one. And it is one that it calls them to thought and to recollection and to consideration of what is true justice and what is fairness and what is rightness. And then to once establishing that standard and establishing the history of his part to that standard. And then let's take a close look at your part to that standard of righteousness and how badly we fail it. And so we saw the various developments there beginning and now he gets into some of the specifics and we come to verse 10 and following and uh, we're going to try to drive our way through much of chapter 2 and I certainly can't give each verse the time and attention that many of them deserve um, uh, or we would be here for five, six years going through this book and maybe that, and I just can't believe that that's going to happen. I don't want to be on the planet that long. Um, so we're going to move a little quicker. Uh, but uh, we come to a question, and the invitation is to uh, go take a world tour. Take a world tour in your mind, or if you have the resources, go fly around. Um, with our media, we can take that tour in front of our computer screens if you wanted to, and take a tour of the nations. Go look around and see how many of them uh, we're quick to discard the gods of their land. Now, I've been to a few countries, and we certainly have been exposed to them, and we see the incredible uh, attachment that these nations have to their gods that do nothing, have done nothing, um, and gods that they many times make with their own hands. And so we go into uh, nations like India and others and even into Haiti and the, and the voodoo that is there and the, all the false worship that we see in all these nations and the darkness that is there because of it. And even as you go into the Islamic lands and you look at them and you examine them and, and, the, and the loyalty that they express and they demonstrate toward their gods that are not gods. And here, God comes, the one who has moved and act and, and has, has uh, been seen by Israel, the, one, the, the nation that has been, enjoyed uh, this living God and has all the history of that, is the one God, or is the one nation that is not loyal to its God. And so God invites him, go ahead, go on your world tour, look, consider diligently, 
and see if there's been such a thing that as a nation changed its gods. And these are the ones that don't have the true and living God. And we can look through historically, and, and you've, a couple of nations are going to be listed here later on, Egypt and Assyria, and both of those had extensive exposure to the God of Israel, did they not? Think about the ex- exposure Egypt had to the God of Israel. Oh, boy, did they get exposed to the God of Israel and his power. Oh, yes, they did. Um, ask that old Pharaoh back then, the days, not only of the days of Moses, go back to the days of Joseph. For 400 years, they had Israelites living in their land. And one of them, Joseph, delivered them from starvation and made them the power nation of the world through his wisdom and divine revelation and insight and planning and skill. This is the influence of the God of Israel in Egypt for hundreds of years from Joseph. And, and, and you might think, well, certainly that's a nation that's going to now turn to the God of Israel. I mean, they've seen his power in the wisdom of Joseph all the way to the plagues upon Egypt through the time of Moses, certainly this is a nation that will abandon all those ridiculous gods that they have made with their own hands that look like cats and, and mice and uh, the sun and the moon and, and all of and these other animals, um, the, the beetle, uh, all these other gods that they worshipped. They have seen the hand of God and yet they stayed committed. To their false gods. And once Israel was gone, out of the land, and once the plagues had finished and Pharaoh's army was drowned in the Red Sea, we find almost no indication that Egypt was interested in leaving off their old gods, as powerless as they were to stop the one true and living God of, Mo- of Israel, Moses, Joseph. No, that nation wasn't going to change its gods that weren't gods. They were committed to them. The other nations going to be listed here is Assyria. And again, they have had exposure as well to the God of Israel. And, and, uh, and they're going to get exposed a little bit further as they're going to have uh, reasons. They're just going to be unable to take Jerusalem. And they are going to uh, see the working of God, a true God that's living, but they still have their commitments to their false gods. Think of the Philistines and being able to take the Ark of the Covenant and take it to their own land and set it in the temple of their God and then what it does to their God over the night. And they're afraid of it. And they look and peer inside and they receive the the punishment of God and and the curse of God comes on there and and they recognize it immediately. This is because of the Ark of the Covenant we took from Israel. Send it back! Send it back! So we can keep worshiping our own gods who aren't gods. And the Ark of the Covenant proved it. Here in the temple of Dagon, Dagon ends up off his throne and broken in pieces before it's all done. Couldn't defend itself as just stone against the true and living God of Israel. 
So yes, all these nations around him, and he names some others, he invites them to go on a tour of them and see how committed they are to their gods that aren't really gods at all. They're worthless. We can walk around today and we can see the commitment of these nations to their gods that are evil and vile, that are powerless. And we, we look at their commitment and we, and we should just kind of shrug our shoulders but, and be confounded by it. Why are you so committed to something you made? And I go out to India and walk along and there's that rock and it's, you took the rock and you painted it and you built it a little house and now you say that, that's exactly what Jesus says, you gave birth to me. You're my father. You're my mother. And they're more committed to that than the ones who know the true and living God are committed to him. He says none of them run away and change their gods. Oh, they're strongly committed to them. But my people, the ones that I have worked for, and he talks about, you weren't treated as a slave or a servant. You got to see the hand of God. Anyone that came up against you, I destroyed them. I humbled them. I, I broke them. Anyone that came up against you. There's evidence. There's, there's a history. And so you have had this experience of the one true and living God, the God who, who met and spoke with Abram, with Isaac, with Jacob, the one who has sent the prophets who have prophesied against the balls, the one who sent fire down from heaven and, and, and consumed the sacrifice, consumed the stones, and consumed the water around the stones in the days of Elijah. This is the God who parted the Red Sea and then the Jordan and gave you food from heaven. This is the God that brought water out of a rock. This is the God that's destroyed your enemies, who brought down the walls of Jericho that did all of this. You have the the living God in covenant relationship with you and you have turned your face away from him to go after all these other gods that do nothing for their people. And this is how God describes it in verse 11, the last heart part, but my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. And the word glory there is capitalized in my translation of God's word, and it's referring to their God and the one who is what they ought to have been glorying in. I say, how does God become their glory? And we look at this as more of a possessive um, rather than understanding that is not that we possess God, but that he is our God uh, in the sense that we have given ourselves to him, that, we, that uh, he and, and the people of Israel were in this covenant relationship and that he was their glory. That is not that he was there to glorify them, but that, that shared together in that covenant relationship, in that agreement that they had, in that, that closeness that he had with those people, that there was a glory that was shared Perhaps the best way to understand this idea is to think of Moses. And wouldn't it be fun to walk around with a shiny face that no one could look at? Well, how did he get that? 
How did he get that glory that the children of Israel could not look at him in his face because it was too bright, it was too luminous. It was, he, they just didn't want to look at that. Oh, man, where did he get that? Well, it wasn't being generated inside of him. It was not really his glory in the terms of something he produced. But it is rather the glory that is reflected off of him because he was in the presence of God. And thus, the glory of Moses was really the glory of the Lord. And so Israel is now going away from that glory that as God worked on their behalf, they were, had an opportunity to, to uh, reflect the glory of God to all the nations, and he called them to that. You're supposed to be a blessing to all the nations. As my glory is at work in you, it reflects and now the world should be able to see it so brightly they can hardly look at you. And it is therefore your glory. And instead of fulfilling that role, you have changed it. And now all the benefits that you would have received and have been receiving historically because you're in the presence of my glory and reflecting it to the nations is that you've made it worthless. And he says, you've turned your face away from me. You don't want that glory on your face and therefore there is nothing because you've turned away from the source of glory and have turned your face away from it. Now, You're not receiving the glory of God, the benefits that are there, and therefore you have nothing to reflect to the world. And this is the condition of Israel. When they turn their face, get away from the God that gave all the benefits. And he's going to start listing off some of the benefits along the way here. And some of those we wouldn't think of as benefits, but they are. Uh, When you have an engaged God, a God that is active on your behalf, um, it is similar to an engaged uh, and active parent. And we all know that there are different kinds of parents. There's the, the inactive, unengaged, and sometimes not even present parent that is letting the child raise itself or the society raise the child. And we see the effects of that and we recognize that that's not really loving parenting. But the parent that is involved and uh, engaging the child, seeking to do the child's, to, what, seeking the child's welfare and do it benefit is a parent that's going to do not only uh, the good things like feeding their kid and clothing him and making sure he has housing and education and whatever else is necessary, but you're also going to find them disciplining, punishing, rebuking, correcting their children. That's what an engaged parent does, what an active parent will do for his or her child. And so when we find an active God among the benefits that he's going to list off of there is that I've come and I've tried to discipline you, I've tried to correct you. And he describes that here if we jump down, um, for example, verse 20. For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds. And, and here's your response. We won't, we'll stop sinning. We're sorry, we'll stop sinning. But you didn't. You said you were. You said you would stop, but you didn't stop. And he goes on and he talks about their benefit, and then right after talking about his discipline of them, look at verse 21. 
I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. I did my best work on you. I poured myself out into you. I did my best. You got my best. I provided for you um, a land flowing of milk and honey. Um, I worked my power on your behalf in multiple ways. I established you as a fine vessel. In the Christian world, in the church, we would recognize this as his provision of salvation through Jesus Christ, that that provision is more than sufficient. It was the very best that God gave his one and only son, and that it did not bring us into servitude in his house, but it brought us into sonship in his house, that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, that we have this intimate relationship now with him, a place of blessing, but also a place of responsibility. And we who have received so much and received so much and received so much, the best that God can do for us. And this is what he does for his people. He does his best. He says, I planted you the the best vine there is out there, the highest quality. God isn't out there giving secondhand salvations away. He's just not doing it. What you have available to you, what God has made available to you through Jesus Christ, is his best salvation plan from eternity past of how great a salvation he's going to give you. And that's described for us in Ephesians. That when God was thoughtful of how he would redeem man, he would not just um, want to redeem them a little, but he was going to lift them up, not to neutral, not to sinlessness. That wasn't enough. He was going to lift them up, lift them up to the highest levels. Because God does the finest, highest quality for his people. His deliverance isn't minimal is the greatest. It's not going to save you just a slightly to just shift your lifestyle just a little bit or just to interrupt it one day a week. That's not what his salvation is about. It's about radically transforming you into a new creation. God says, this is what I was doing for you. I've done everything for you. I corrected you. I, when you went wrong, I disciplined you, and I've also established you with the very best. I've set you up. Better than anyone could, and certainly better than their gods did. I bring you into a land that you don't have, you can eat food that you didn't plant. Um, you're going to enjoy trees that you didn't grow. You're going you're gonna to have... Uh, the fruit of the vine that you never trimmed, and you're going to be able to enjoy it all. And the bounty won't stop as long as you're faithful. And this is the, the nature of not only the God of Israel, but the God today of all who follow after Jesus Christ. This is his nature. Is to do his best on our behalf, and he has done it. Historically, we can look back at our salvific history to Christ and even back into these days of redemption. And we can look at at the working of God and we can conclude he has done his very best for us. He has sent his only begotten son. Uh, He came and, and gave the very best, the sinless sacrifice to cover my sin, to to pay that penalty. He has done that and then raised him from the dead with great power. 
that I might sit in heavenly places. He has done his best. And the salvation we receive, sometimes we talk about it like it's, eh, it's a gift that we don't care whether we've gotten or not. And we struggle to find things to be thankful for when God has given us nothing but his best. (laughs) And he rehearses this with Israel, and he's going to rehearse it more and more as we go through Jeremiah. But he rehearses this with them. All these other peoples are committed to gods that aren't gods and have done nothing for them. Here I've done everything for you. I have given you the very best I am the most involved. In fact, well, I'm the only God that really is God, so none of them can be involved with you, but with their people, but your God is involved with you. This is your condition. And instead of being a thankful people that says, how can we serve you? Ooh, let let me serve you. Instead of having that kind of an attitude of awe and reverence and of fear and recognize that if this is a God that is active and moving, then he's going to discipline us just as much as he is blessing us with, with, a, with provision and abundance, with all the, meeting our needs, he's also going to keep us on the straight and narrow. And that should have produced a fear of him. To violate this God is just as dangerous as obeying him is blessed. So what did Israel do? They turned their face away. And they went after other gods. A thing unheard of. And you can see God pointing us to reason. And saying, does this make sense to you? (laughs) Does it make sense? Here's a rock. Somebody put a chisel to and fashioned into the image of something. And you're going to live your life for that rock. Maybe even kill some of your children for it. You're going to bring it your life. And here's the one true and living God who's actually done something for you, who is active agent, who himself, oh, kill the beast, who himself is involved. And you do nothing but turn away from him? Come on. Is there any reasonableness to that? Here's the God that gives and gives and gives some more. And his grace abounds, overflowing. And in response, we turn and say, you know, those people's rock over there looks kind of cool. Wish I had a rock. Somebody put a chisel to it and made it look like something. And we start looking at the rock when we have the, the, this little rock somebody chiseled away and made into a bird or something. And we're over here with the one true living God, discontent. And that is really one of the strongest agents in turning away from the true God is discontentment. Which is why it becomes a really good sermon for the day as we look towards Thanksgiving opposite of thanksgiving is discontentment. 
be unthankful is to be not recognize that you've been given so much and are in such a blessed state that if you have difficulty being thankful throughout not only this week but every week, then you, much like Israel, in relationship with the one true and living God, are looking over and saying, oh, I want that little chiseled out piece of stone or wood. And God describes this in verse 13, as two sins. And I want you to notice that it is two sins. It's not one. These are two different sins in God's eyes. Number one is that you have forsaken me. You turned your face away from me, is what he's going to say later on um, along there. He also says that you have uh, uh, gone sniffing after everything else like a like a donkey in heat. You're anyone else and everyone else you go after, but his first thing is you've forsaken me. And so here I am, the fountain of living waters. So you're at the fountain. You're here at the spring where here comes water that is fresh and alive, that sustains, that provides, that is sweet to the taste and precious to our bodies. And we're dwelling there. We have a place there. God says, I have put you here in the, and, and, and he given you full access, unlimited access to the fountain of living waters. Here you are. Here, because you are in a relationship with me, you have this access and you have walked away from this precious, precious commodity that you had full access to, and you go over here and you're going to build yourself a cistern, um, which is a, a water collection device. Remember, this water is living water coming up. It's springing forth. It's a fountain, and there's no end to it. Now, I don't know, some of you have been in New Mexico a long, long time, maybe all your life. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to a place where there's fountains like this, where there you have water just... And I it, go to Arkansas, okay? There's a reason all those towns are called springs. Because the, the nation is, or the state is full of them. And so if you go to Rock Springs, if you go to all Hot Springs, you go to all these places in Arkansas. And I've been to a few of them. And you sit there and you go like, the, and they, every one of them, there's so many thousands of gallons an hour coming out of this spring. And you're just like, get a pipe and a hose and we'll send it to, New Mexico. And it just keeps coming. It's like, how long has it been coming like that? As long as we've been here. It's a fountain of water. A spring that's just gushing forth. And God says, this is what I am. I am the fountain of living water. Here you will have not just a good life today, but you'll have eternity. You have eternal life here. And now you're looking over there and say, oh, those miserable people over there, uh, look what they have. They chiseled out a, a little depression in, a, in, a, in, the, in the soil and they're collecting this, rain, this water that's overrun from other places. And, uh, and by the way, you, you, we do have those in New Mexico. <laughs> those we have, cisterns. Most of them are broken. Uh, I visited a few of those too. And so you go up to Acoma and you go up there and that's how they were collecting their water and they, they chiseled out little uh, uh, 
cisterns out of the rock and they would collect any kind of water they can get and and usually it's streaming from other places and it's muddy and it doesn't always stay there very long because usually the cisterns end up being broken and God says you want muddy water that's stale, stagnant and and that's been collected and, and gotten together and it's not going anywhere, it's not coming from anywhere directly and 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 then it leaks out and you want that you want to sit there and and drink from that when you could have this does it make any sense that is their sin plural two sins you've forsaken god and you've wanted after this which one comes first isn't relevant because this is a pair of sins. And so you, whether you started to forsake God because you took for granted everything that he was doing for you and, you know, this sweet water is okay, but, you know, it's just... Uh, I, maybe that dirty, muddy water that they lick off the bottom of their cisterns because they're leaking out so fast, maybe that's got a better flavor. you got to run over to there. Why? Why? I don't know why we live in New Mexico and not Arkansas. I don't know. They got plenty of water over there, as far as I know. God says, this, these are the sins that you've committed against me. And for these, I have to punish you. You keep running after their gods. You go to every green tree. And the, the imagery he's using here is not polite just to let you know. And I appreciate that about God. In our politically correct, overzealous environment to not say anything that might be a teeny little bit offensive to somebody else, we're afraid to use these kinds of terms. But God, in very, what we would consider impolite terms, because, frankly, sin is very impolite. God comes in and describes them as being harlots, as being donkeys in heat. Being the degenerated plant of an alien vine. Being so committed to thinking that there's something better out there than what God is offering over here. And God's done his best for us. He has sent his son to die for us. He provides a complete salvation, forgiving all of our sin. This is his offer. And making us his very children, that we might enter into heavenly places for all eternity, and that we have an opportunity to walk with him in this life, even as we anticipate that one, that we are now free from the power, though not the presence, of sin. We have victory over it if we'll simply claim it and live on it. This is all God has done for us. And instead we look around the world and think that somehow they have something better to offer. And the fact is the only reason we're interested in them is because we've really grown discontent with the sweetness of what God has provided. And we have grown unthankful. And so we start looking around. And instead of seeing the misery in the world around us, we covet after what they have, even though what they have 
is doing nothing for them. Let's be honest about that. Let's let's confront people with this. Are they happy? Go out there on Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. Actually, you don't have to wait till then. Now you can start Thanksgiving evening. Um, Go out there and watch. Just sit in the mall and just watch them. See if they're happy. Having a great time out there fighting each other for the best deal. I mean, and I'm not just saying fighting as in struggle. We're talking about hitting each other, fighting each other, wrestling each other, kicking each other, biting each other, pulling each other's hair to get to the best. And you tell me that your desire after materialism brings any kind of happiness? No. This is the false god of our age. We have two or three main gods in our nation, um, and, and they vie for who is the top god um, in our culture. Uh, among them is, as I said, materialism. Um, right up there is hedonism, pleasure. If, it doesn't, if it's not fun, I don't do it. You know, oh, I hate going to work. It's not any fun. Well, it's work. Why does everything have to be fun? I used to be really try to get church to be a fun place to be, and I started realizing that's not what I was called to do. Church isn't a place to be fun; it's a place to be serious, sober, worshipful, and sometimes that's in well, always that should be enjoyable, but sometimes it's fun, but most of the time it's more important than fun. There's something more important than fun? Yes, there is. A lot of things are more important than fun. And most people are done with relationships once the fun is over. You're no fun anymore, so I need to have some other person to sleep with. I have to have some other person to hang with because you're not fun enough for me. And we feel the need to entertain because that is the God of this age, and we have bought into that, and so churches are all about how to entertain you. And you don't see a band, and you don't see a drama, and you don't see uh, multimedia, because I'm not here to entertain you. I'm not going to bring the God of our age into our worship. So those are our gods. Materialism, humanism, hedonism. uh, These are the gods that we encounter, and too many of us long after them and say, oh... When we have living water, we go after the broken, nasty, mucky cisterns that are leaking. So I want to drink from there. That's where I'll be happy. If I can have all this set of experiences, and we'll travel the world trying to have certain experiences. Oh, I want to drop from an airplane and have the experience of falling to my death before the parachute opens up. And somehow that thrill is going to bring me happiness. Wrong! Wrong. It's empty, void, and it lasts for well, seconds, and then it's over. And you've had the experience, so what? You still got to go home and cook supper. The hard work. My poor married daughters are finding out that they have to cook supper every day now, not just when mom's at work. Because <laughs> their husbands are hungry every night. How'd that happen? 
You see, God has done so much for us, and we sit here and long after the empty, worthless, vain, unprofitable gods of this age, and we are all guilty of it still today. And we could sit here in this room and say, we're not doing that. That's not who we are. That doesn't define me. But listen, you're just like Israel, because here's what they said. Verse 20, we already read it. I will not transgress like this anymore. I won't do this. And yet, there you are. God looks over your shoulder, sees what you're doing. And you're out there. Verse 22, for though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, (laughs) I'm going to cleanse my ways of that myself. Yet your iniquity is marked before me. God still sees it because it's all outward. It's It's all on your skin, but... You're just trying to get the superficial stuff, and yet in your heart you're still longing after all of that. You're still defining who you are, not by the living water of God's word and of God himself at work in us and our relationship with him, but we define it by the world's values, which aren't valuable at all. They're worthless. And it's interesting, we use the word longings for what the world, the longings, and uh, it's interesting because all the longings of this world are short. They don't last. Oh, that we would be careful to recognize the gods of this world. That owning a bunch of stuff isn't necessary in a relationship with God. It's not a value that having all this pleasure around us, we are inundated with everything to make us have fun and be entertained. We can't even step out the door hardly without entertainment in our pocket. Is that about it? Come on, the cell phones aren't there. I mean, everyone says they're there for an emergency, but let's just be real honest. They're there to entertain you. Nobody needs to text while they're driving. You can, all, if it's that important, pull over and deal with it. But the fact is, they're just bored. And isn't it amazing how much more access we have to entertainment than anyone else in the world, and how much more bored we are than anyone else in the world? Because it doesn't work. It's a God that doesn't give. It can't bring the life you want. You want joy, and you're trying to replace it with entertainment thinking that entertainment will bring joy, but entertainment is an empty God that will not be profitable. It will not bring what it offers. The joy you're seeking is in serving the Lord. That brings joy. The only time we finally turn to God just like Israel, <laughs> is when we're in trouble. Verse 28. I'm sorry, verse 27. In the middle of us, they turn their back to me, not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they say, arise and save us. Oh, Lord, where are you? Well, he's in the same place he always was. You're the one that walked away. You showed him your backside instead of your face. You walked over to the broken cisterns. You left him. You forsook him. He didn't forsake you. 
and now it's time that you're in trouble and you recognize the only one that can really deliver me out of this is the one that's really active and cares and has the power. And it's not the broken cisterns. It's not the little rock carved into a bird. It's not this junk over here. It's not this fancy living. It's not the entertainment. It's not the technology. It's not even me. I need the one true and living God. And God's response, surprise, surprise, is let them help you. Which essentially is a question again, why should I save you? And oh, the frightening condition of being in that position This is one of, I think, the most frightening verses among them in the Bible that genuinely startles me sometimes when God says, why should I? He says, where are your gods that you've made for yourselves? Let them arise. If they can save you in the time of trouble... For according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. And so every city had their own god. Let them save you. Verse 29, why will you plead with me? Why are you asking me? I'm nothing to you. You show up one day a week, do your little thing, and then you carry on your life. Uh, but you haven't been satisfied with me, and you've gone after things that can't satisfy, thinking that that's going to do it. Um, and now you're in trouble, and you come to me, and God's response is, why ask me? And that is a startling statement for God to make. And I think we don't believe that God would ever make that, but I'm telling you, he just did. (laughs) We don't believe that God is like that. But the fact is, that is a righteous statement. Why are you asking me? It's a statement that I've asked some of my own sometimes, some of my own children. You don't want to obey me. Why are you coming asking me for help? You didn't follow the directions and instructions I gave you. So now, um, in our home, this is how it comes out. You've got to live your choices. All my kids have heard that multiple times. And they come to me. And I say, live your choices. You were taught better. You were given better advice. You chose your own way. Um, Don't expect me to bail you out. Live your choices. I'm living mine. I'm loving it. Live your choices. And essentially, God is coming to them saying, why are you talking to me? It's your choice. You go talk to your gods. You didn't want me. So why should I help you now? And the expectation of God, and this is, this is the thing, he's not going to help. <laughs> I'm not helping you. In fact, I'm working against you. Recognize that when God says, why ask me? Realize that at that point, you are in the condition of being an enemy of God. You are his enemy. He isn't your enemy. You are his enemy. Because you have made it that way because of your choices 
to go after the gods of this age. Because you've got to have that stuff. You've got to have that pleasure, that experience. You have to have that that the world lifts up and says, this is where you will find whatever it is you're looking for. God knows that there is nothing there for you. So when we forget the Lord, when we feign, we pretend to be repentant, but in our hearts we're still long after everything else, God is not deceived. He says, you've killed your own prophets. I sent you messengers. You killed them. You raised your sword against them. You didn't want to hear that message. And now you come screaming to me saying, save us, where are you? Save us. And he says, why are you talking to me? Why should I do anything on your behalf? You have made yourself my enemy when I did nothing but my best for you. And instead of being thankful and grateful and content in that, you looked over there and you said, oh, look. They got little pieces of wood that are carved into neat little shapes. I need to go pray to that. It's my mother and father. Okay, we'll just call it Mother Earth or Mother Nature. It gave birth to me. And God's response is to say, not only am I not available to help you, I'm the one that's raising up the enemies against you. Not because I'm your enemy, but because I am one who will call you to righteousness. I am the parent that's going to come and correct you, discipline you, and break you until you are truly, fully broken and aren't making these ridiculous claims of innocence. And that's what we find by the end of the chapter is God here is saying, in verse 35, you, you say you're innocent. How can God be angry at me? I'm innocent. I didn't do anything wrong. Yep, Israel was claiming that. We didn't do anything wrong. We went every Sabbath and, and did our little deal there in the synagogue. Or we went to the temple that once a year and did our sacrifice. We're innocent. What more do we do? Like God doesn't know what you're doing on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, morning, noon, and night. Saturday and Sunday too, by the way. You claim innocence in his presence on one day of the week and he sees the rest of it, all the rest of the days, and he's like, um, because you say I have not sinned, why in the world should I help you? And in fact, um, you're your own enemy. All I have to do is remove my hand of protection from you. All I have to do is withdraw my resources from you and suddenly let you make your way, and that'll destroy you. And I need you to understand this. God needs you to understand this. You need to understand this. You go your own way. God doesn't have to work against you. You go your own way. You will be your worst enemy. You will destroy you. Israel's going to destroy herself. God simply has to, he's going to raise up a force up there in Babylon, which is really to there to protect Israel from being assimilated into a bunch of different nations and disappear from the earth for all time. 
I'm convinced that one of the good things God did was send Babylon down, send them into captivity where they are set aside and set apart and, and maintain an identity uh, that they could uh, then be restored 70 years later. If not, they would have gone off into all these other different nations and been dispersed and would have never been risen up again. Because this is what they were doing to themselves as they went after this God over here and that God over there, talking to this nation, oh, Egypt, come on up here. And Egypt came up, and what trouble that caused. Everywhere they went, they ended up bringing misery on their nation and more and more trouble. And so God says, you've done this to yourself. All I have to do is remove my hand of protection and that you destroy yourself. And when I communicate and say you've got to live your choices, we are saying that you either choose God's way or choose your own way. And when you choose your own way and you destroy yourself, don't you dare blame God. Don't you dare come back to God and say, why aren't you saving me when you have destroyed yourself and you have not broken your spirit from your sin and said, I have destroyed myself, O oh Lord. Forgive me. We don't ask the Lord to forgive us. We ask the Lord to save us. Deliver me. In other words, get me out of the jam I created. Out of my discontentment and unthankfulness. Because I went after what the world offered instead of what you have. This is the calling of God to Jeremiah. This is his argument. It's built on the history. It's looking at your heart. And it shares reasonable truth that we can look at this and say, well, this is just. This is, this is right. That if I'm making these choices, I should have to live those choices and their consequences and that if I don't fear the Lord and don't want to sit at his fountain of living water and I want to go over there and grovel in the broken cisterns of the, of the desert, then I'm going to be thirsty. That's reality. That's natural and that's right that if you make those choices you should have to live them unless you make different choices and turn and recognize like the prodigal son what was i thinking <laughs> back home even as a slave back home i had a better if i were a slave back home i'd have a better life than i have out here on my own you know that we would come to our senses this is what God asks you to do. He doesn't ask you to do something weird and radical and strange. He asks you, come to your senses. Be reasonable, people. You're chasing after elusive things that you'll never get out of what you want. Come to your senses. God has provided everything, the best of everything, and invites us to sit by rivers of living waters and plant ourselves there and be content and draw from them forever with all the joy and purpose, with all the peace, safety that that provides us. That no one in the world understands, nor can they take it away. It is a sad thing to see the people of God, Christians, groveling at broken cisterns, 
when there is a fountain of living water waiting for us. God has given us his best. And the only reason it's not enough is because you have grown unthankful and discontent. And I want to challenge you, not on a superficial level, but on a very deep heart level, that you consider your ways. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and again for your word. We pray you might help it to be at work in our lives, not only this day, but each day. Lord, where we have turned our backs to you and faced the world and gone that way, convict us of it, turn us from it, that we might respond. And Lord, we know that to do that sometimes takes some incredibly hard experiences for us. We are stubborn people. We are unwilling many times to acknowledge our own sin. That we have gone truly after other gods and prostitute ourselves with them six out of seven days. Sometimes six and a half out of seven days. Lord, forgive us. We know that forgiveness is depend upon our genuine repentance. So find a different spirit within us. It's our prayer. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.